chapter 7, verse 36, through chapter 8, verse 3, verses 36 through 38. And one of the Pharisees desired that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet, behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Burkett Notes Observe here, 1. The Pharisee's civility and our Savior's courtesy. The Pharisee invites Christ to eat with him. Christ readily accepts the invitation, never refusing any opportunity for doing good. There is a duty of civil courtesy which we owe to the worst of men. None are so bad, but we may soberly eat and drink with them. Only let us take care that if our converse do not make them better, their example not make us worse. Observe, too, what an opportunity our Savior lays hold upon in the Pharisee's house of doing good to a sinful woman, who, coming to Christ, bowed down in a sorrowful sight and sense of her sins, finds a hearty welcome to him and is dismissed with comfort from him. The history runs thus. Behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, that is, a Gentile, some say, a remarkable, notorious, and infamous sinner, say others, probably a lewd, unclean woman. She is led in with a note of admiration. Behold, a woman that was a sinner. Learn that to see a sensual and notorious sinner out of true remorse of conscience to seek unto a Savior is a rare and wonderful sight. Observe farther. It is not said, Behold a woman that sinned, but Behold a woman that was a sinner. One action does not denominate a person a sinner, but a habit and trade of sin. Again it is said, Behold a woman in the city. The place where she acted her lewdness added to the heinousness of her sin. It was in the city. The more public the offense, the greater the scandal. Sin is sin, though in the desert where no eye sees it but the offense is aggravated by the number and multitude of beholders. Yet observable it is that there is no mention made either of the woman's name or the city's name, and it is both presumptuous and injurious for any to name her, whose name God has been pleased to conceal. For this is not the same woman that anointed Christ's feet, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. That was in Bethany. This is in Galilee that in the house of Simon the leper, this of Simon the Pharisee. Observe 3. The behavior and demeanor of this poor woman. She appears in the posture of a penitent. She stood at Christ's feet, behind him, weeping. Or note, 1. The great change wrought in this sinful woman and the evident effect of it. Her eyes, which had been formerly lamps of fire by lust, are now a holy fountain of penitential tears. Her hair, which she had used as a net to catch her fond and foolish lovers, doth now become a towel for her Savior's feet. Verily, such a heart, as has once felt the sting and smart of sin, will make plentiful expression of the greatness of its sorrow. Again, too, she stands behind Christ and weeps. This proceeded, no doubt, from a holy bashfulness. She that was wont to look boldly in the face of her lovers dares not now behold the face of her Savior. She that was wont to send her alluring beams forth into the eyes of her wanton lovers now casts her dejected eyes down upon the earth. And behold, the plenty of her tears. They flow in such abundance that she washes Christ's feet with them. She began to wash his feet, says the text, 
but we read not when she ended. Never were our Savior's feet so bedewed with a more precious liquor than this of the remorseful tears. Thus doth a holy penitent account no offense too mean that is done to the honor of its Savior. Verses 39-43 now when the Pharisee which had bidded him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he say, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed five hundred pence, the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. How unreasonably the Pharisee was offended with Christ for permitting this poor woman to come near him and touch him. Admit she had been the greatest of sinners. Might not such come to Christ when he was come from heaven to them? O blessed Savior, there is merit enough in thy blood and mercy enough in thy bowels to justify and save the vilest sinners, which by repentance and faith do make a timely application to thee. Observe, too, the parable which Christ makes use of for the Pharisee's conviction and the woman's comfort, namely the parable of two debtors, one of whom owed a greater sum and the other a less, who both having nothing to pay were both freely forgiven, and both upon their forgiveness loved their creditor much, but he most to whom most was forgiven. Now from this parable we gather these lessons of instruction. One, that great is the debt which all mankind have contracted, and lie under to the justice of God. It is expressed here by five hundred pence. Our debt is infinite, and had not miraculous mercy interposed, divine justice could never have been satisfied, but by undergoing an infinite punishment. Two, that yet all sinners stand not alike indebted to the justice of God. Some owe more, and others less. All are guilty, but not all alike. Some owe five hundred talons, others fifty pence. Three, that be men's debt greater or less, their sins more or fewer, tis utterly impossible for any person of himself to clear his debt and make satisfaction, but they that owe least stand in need of mercy and forgiveness. He forgave them both. For that the forgiveness that is in God is a free, gratuitous, and gracious forgiveness. He frankly forgave them both. Gracious art thou, O Lord, in thy doing towards thy children, and thy tender mercy is over all thy works. Verses 44 through 50. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, had not ceased to kiss my feet. Mine head with oil thou did not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with them began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Burkett notes. Observe here one. 
how our Savior recounts and sums up the several particular instances of this woman's love and respect towards himself. She washed, wiped, kissed, and anointed his feet, according to the custom of those eastern countries. Love will creep where it cannot go. It will stoop to the meanest offices and is ambitious of the highest services for and towards persons we sincerely love. Observe, too, the words of comfort given by our Savior to this poor woman. Thy sins, which are many, are forgiven thee. Thence learn that the pardoning mercy of God is boundless and unlimited. It is not limited to any sort of sin or sinners. It is not limited to any degree of sin or sinners. Thy sins, that are many, are forgiven thee. And thy sins, which are heinous, are forgiven also. Observe 3. What is the effect and fruit of great pardoning mercy? It is great love. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Her love to Christ was the effect of his pardoning love to her, not the cause of it. She did not first love much, and then Christ forgave her. But Christ first forgave her, and then she loved much. Her love was a love of gratitude, because she was pardoned, and not a love of merit to purchase and procure her pardon. The papists interpret this word, for, as if it were the antecedent cause of her forgiveness, whereas it is a consequential sign and evidence that the free grace and mercy of Christ had forgiven her. Her many and great sins were forgiven her, and therefore she loved much. The debt is not forgiven because the debtor loves his creditor, but the debtor therefore loves because the debt is forgiven. Forgiveness goes before, and love follows after. Hence learn that much love will follow great forgiveness. Love will work in the heart towards God in the same proportion to that love which we have experienced from God. Observe, lastly, the very gracious dismission which this woman meets with from our blessed Savior. What could she desire that is not here granted to her? Here is remission, safety, faith, and peace. All these here meet to make a contrite soul happy. Remission is the ground of her safety. Faith is the ground of her peace. Peace, the fruit of her faith and salvation, the issue of her remission. O woman, great was thy sin, great was Christ's pardoning grace, and great was thy joy and comfort. Thy sins are forgiven thee, thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass afterward that he went out through every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Burkett notes, Observe here the great work and business which not only the apostles, but Christ himself was engaged in and employed about, namely, preaching the gospel, those glad tidings of salvation to a lost world. Where note that Christ himself labored in this work of public preaching. He did not send forth his disciples and curates to work and sweat in the vineyard while he himself took his ease at home but he accompanies them himself. Yea, he goes before them himself in this great and excellent work. Jesus went preaching the glad tidings of the gospel, and the twelve were with him. Learn hence that preaching of the gospel is a great and necessary work incumbent upon all the ministers of Christ. Let their dignity and preeminence in the church be what it will. Surely none of the servants are above their Lord and Master. Did he labor in the word and doctrine? Well may they. Observe, too, the places where Christ and his apostles preached, not only in the populous cities, but in the poor country villages. They went through every city and village preaching the gospel.
Some will preach the gospel, providing that they may preach at court or in the capital cities of the nation. But the poor country villages are overlooked by them. Our Savior and his apostles were not of this mind. Tis true they were itinerary preachers. We are settled. But be the place never so mean and obscure, and the people never so rude and barbarous, we must not think it beneath the greatest of us to exercise our ministry there if God calls us thither. Christ went through the villages, as well as cities, preaching. Verses 2 and 3. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. Burkett notes, Among the number of those that did accompany our Savior and his apostles, mention is here made of a certain woman, who had been healed by Christ of evil spirits and infirmities that is, of spiritual and corporal diseases, for the Jews were wont to call vices and evil habits by the name of devils, as the devil of pride, the devil of malice, etc. Now, as concerning these women following Christ, and their administering to him, several circumstances are observable, as one, that women did make up a considerable number of Christ's followers, I and of his apostles' followers, too. The devout women were not few. Acts 17.4. And verily, it is no disgrace or shame, but a matter of glory and cause of thankfulness, if our ministry be attended by, and blessed unto, the weaker sex. I believe in many of our congregations, and at most of our communions, are found two women for one man. God grant them knowledge answerable to their zeal, and obedience proportional to their devotion. Observe, too, one of these women that followed Christ was Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward. What? One of Herod's family transplanted into Christ's household? Oh, the freeness of the grace of God. Even in the worst societies and places, God has a number to stand up for his name and bear witness to his truth. We read of a Joseph in the Pharaoh's court, of an Obadiah in Ahab's court, of a Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's court, of a church in Nehru's house, and of Joanna here in bloody Herod's family who would put John the Baptist to death. Observe 3. The holy courage and resolution of our Savior's female followers. No doubt they met with taunts and jeers, with scoffs and scorns enough, and perhaps from the husbands, too, for following the carpenter's son and a few fishermen. But this does not damp but inflame their zeal. The Holy Ghost acquaints us with several instances of masculine courage and manly resolution in the women that followed Christ as his female disciples. At our Savior's trial, the women clave to him when his disciples fled from him. They accompanied him to his cross. They assisted at his funeral. They attended his hearse to the grave. They watched his sepulchre, fearing neither the darkness of the night nor the rudeness of the soldiers. These feeble women had more courage than all the apostles. Learn that courage is the special and peculiar gift of God, and where he gives courage it is not in man to make afraid. Observe 4. The pious and charitable care of these holy women to supply the wants and outward necessities of our Savior. They ministered unto him of their substance. Where note 1. The great poverty of Christ. He lived upon the basket. He would not honor the world so far as to have any part of it in his own hand, but was beholden to others for what he ate and drank. 
Yet must we not suppose that either Christ or his apostles were common beggars, but it is probable there was a bag or common purse among them, which upon occasion supplied their necessities. And there were certain sisters or Christian women, as the learned Dr. Hammond observes, who accompanied Christ and his apostles in their travels and provided necessaries for them when they went up and down preaching the gospel. Note also, too, the condescending grace and humility of Christ. He was not ashamed either of these women's following of him or administering to him because of their former vicious course of life. It is not what we formerly were, but what we are now that Christ considers. It is a glory to him to have great and notorious sinners brought to a closure and compliance with him. The reproach is not that they have been sinners, for Christ did not give himself for a people that were pure and holy, without spot or wrinkle, but to make them so by his word and spirit. Ephesians 5.26 Christ is only ashamed of those that eat of his bread and lift up the heel against him.